Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Brand Called You. This is a podcast where we talk to global thought leaders from around the world. But listen, I have to tell you, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, I only watched two sports, right? Tennis, because of the great characters. There was Billie Jean King, uh, McEnroe, Connors. These were bigger-than-life characters, and I love them. And baseball, primarily because my father was a Dodgers fan, and he would regale me with these amazing stories of walking a block to Ebbets Field and how devastated Brooklynites were when the Dodgers moved away. And, and out of loyalty, I, I watched him. He became a Yankees fan, and I watched with him. But, but as for any other sport like boxing, forget about it, which is why I'm so excited today to introduce our guest, Steve Farhood. Now, Steve has been in the boxing world for at least 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he's got such a prolific history. He started as a writer and then he became an editor. He founded a boxing magazine and he's currently um, an on-air analyst for Showtime's Showbox series and the syndicated Broadway boxing series. But prior to that, he's been on just about every major station, including ESPN, CNN, USA Network. And I feel very proud to say <laughs> he was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2017. So what else can I say? Welcome, Steve. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It's a pleasure. I mean, I am super fascinated by the fact that right out of, was it high school or college, you decided you were fascinated by boxing because I had no fascination with it. Where did that come from? Well, I was always a big sports fan, but not necessarily a huge boxing fan. And then when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, like you, the, the big name, the only name was Ali. So of course I followed him and I was a fan of his, but the reason I got into boxing journalism is because I got a job, my first job out of college. I had a journalism degree from NYU and I couldn't get a job. So I ended up applying for a job as an editor at a publishing company in Long Island and they put out boxing and wrestling magazines. And the first day I was there, I was captured. And uh, 40 something years later, 43 years later, I'm still 44 years later, I'm still doing it. Yeah, I mean, they say that life is what happens to you while you're making other plans, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I had no intention of getting involved in boxing. The only reason I became a professional storyteller was I was I was trying to get acting gigs and, and somebody asked me to tell stories on a cruise ship for a day. Right. About New York and I became obsessed with New York folklore and that was, but I, I'm fascinated that that by accident you you became an accidental sports writer. Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was glad to because while I wasn't necessarily that much in love with boxing, I uh, I loved sports, and uh, really from the very beginning, what made boxing so interesting to me and it remains as such to this day is how interesting the athletes are, and the fact that when it's done right in the ring, when there's a great fight. Is really nothing like it from the anticipation beforehand to the execution of it during to the aftermath so you combine those two and it's it's i've never really been bored for five minutes in my life but you know i i feel like that about for example tennis but what is it about boxing that you were saying there's nothing like it what is it is it something beyond the sport itself is it knowing about the players is it their history what is it that is the magic for you well it's interesting you mentioned tennis because if you watch it, and I'm a huge tennis fan also, if you watch enough tennis, you hear the announcers constantly using boxing references and boxing analogies. This is like two heavyweights slugging it out. 
the difference between tennis and boxing is the stakes. In tennis, I can play you this weekend and you win 6-2, 6-4. And then we play in the finals next weekend and I win 6-4, 6-3, whatever. But in boxing, because they're risking so much more, both physically and professionally, there's a lot more at stake every time they fight. And these guys are literally putting their lives on the line, um, which is really makes it by itself different from any other sport. You know, it's a kind of a well-known fact that people who kind of grow up in a rougher way, in a poorer way, tend to see boxing as a way of uh, getting out of their current predicament. I wonder if that sort of story is what resonates with you too, to some extent. Is it, is there something poignant about a boxer's need to box? Yes, very much so. Um, it really, the story hasn't changed over the years, dating back more than a hundred years. What's changed is the socioeconomic structure of it, because in the thirties, the boxers were all Jewish, Italian, and Irish, because that was who was at the lower rung of the economic ladder. And then slowly it changed to African-Americans in, in America, and it changed to Hispanics. And now boxing is totally global with a lot of former Eastern European fighters and fighters from Asia. So basically, nobody boxes by choice. Boxing chooses you. You don't choose boxing. And the reason for that is who wants to get hit in the head or the face when you don't have to? So this is really only almost a last chance for a lot of these people because they don't have anything. And what happens is that they get weeded out. Only the ones with the real strict discipline and hunger can make it and talent, of course. So um, it's, it's, it's just interesting to see the stories haven't changed that much, but the motivation to box really has remained the same for all these years. But, but now the, the financial stakes are so great. You, I have to believe, even even rich kids can see a, 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 a you know a potential there to to be willing to do that. No. Yes, but rich kids again, you don't get hit in the face if you don't have to. And once you know there comes a time in every boxer's career, usually early in their careers, where they're tested, where they have to face adversity, and that adversity could be injury, that adversity could be someone who's in the ring with them who's beating the crap out of them, whatever it is. That's when you get tested, and if you can overcome that, then you have what it takes. But the rich kid, the middle class kid even, is probably not going to have that. You have to really see this as your only way out. And the most common story I've heard over the years, and it's almost a cliche, it's so common. Young kid, 15, 14 years old, walks into his inner city gym because he has nothing else to do. And he, they put him in the ring and he gets the crap beat out of him. The one that comes back the next day and doesn't quit, that's the one that maybe has a future. So it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of determination to go through what you have to go through to make it. Now, you, you, you're you the child of, is it Lebanese immigrants? Yes. Well, and my parents were both born in America, but yeah. And, you know, I, I'm the child of a Hungarian uh, immigrant. And, and, and the idea of being in any kind of sport that, I remember she wouldn't even let my brother play football because it was too dangerous. Right. Did you, how did your parents feel about, you know, about your, about boxing in general and your world? Well, you know, writing about it or broadcasting about it, of course, is a little safer than doing it. So they had no problem. You know, they were just happy I had a job in journalism. And, you know, I, I've often said that boxing as a sport, when it's done right and beautifully, is a great, great thing. The boxing business throughout 100 and something years has been pretty dirty. So to be in it from a, in the media kind of frees me up from all the, you know, financial risk and all the 
get, getting badly hurt and bad, badly affected by the bad business. So it's really having the best of both worlds because I'm part of the sport without committing myself, you know, to, to being hurt, hurt by it. Yeah. You know, I, I of course grew up in the era of uh, the famous broadcaster, Howard Cosell. Sure. Um, one of the things though, I remember so profoundly was when he would, when he would cover, for example, um, Billie Jean King, he would only talk about her looks, not her accomplishments. Um, and I, I wondered, um, I, I, I kind of witnessed a certain kind of on-air broadcasting early on. And, but I also witnessed some incredibly lyrical broadcasting, um, people who really saw the poetry in it. And I guess I'm just wondering um, who, your, who your role models were for, the, for both on-air and then also writing, because I know you had to have been influenced both negatively and positively by, by some. Well, I feel one of, one of the reasons I feel so blessed is because not only did I have idols as a, as a writer, but I got to meet so many of them and work with them and consider them friends or colleagues. And uh, probably, you know, Pete Hamill being one of them, um, Larry Merchant, who became a broadcaster after he was a writer, and maybe more than anyone else, Bud Schulberg, who wrote On, on the Waterfront and The Heart of They Fall. And, um, these pe became people I got to know. And when I was young, I was smart enough to keep my mouth shut and just let these guys talk and listen to them and learn from them. And, you know, uh, both professionally and personally, that offered me a tremendous opportunity. So, you know, boxing is maybe because it's, it's, it, it mirrors life so much, literally life and death. It's always been something that that's attracted great writers from George Bernard Shaw to Ernest Hemingway to whoever you want to name. Um, the great movies in sports are almost all boxing movies from Raging Bull, name, name your movie. So I think there's, there's a lot of meat there for a journalist, whether you're a writer or a broadcaster. Um, but I mean, do you feel that starting out as a writer, having to put into words what you were, did it help you when you became an on-air uh, uh, analyst? It's a great question. Um, yes and no. Uh, yes, because I would like to think I had a little bit of, a, uh, I was adept at, at, at words and putting words together in, in short sentences. But TV is so different because when you're on live TV, there's no editing pencil. You know, whatever you say, it's done, it's over, it's out there. So you have to be really quick on your feet or quick on your, in your mind to say, because eventually, no matter how many shows you do, something crazy is going to happen. And you have to respond and, and keep your journalistic integrity and be honest. And it's not always so easy. So the, the, the skill set between being a writer and being a broadcaster is different. But being a broadcaster, if you're prepared and you know your stuff, and you prepare properly, just like a writer does, you'll be okay. I I, I heard in, in preparing for this interview that you've been called the best boxing historian ever. And you think that's part of the preparation is just knowing your history backwards and forwards? Well, I, I'm not even close to being that, but I appreciate that, but whoever said it. But um, the history of the sport is so deep and rich. That it's I, I look at it, I'm, I'm 65 years old. I, I learn every day. I'm never, I never stop learning. And, you know, boxing mirrors society so much. You look at racism, you know, when they had the great white hope fight between Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffries, the next day after Jeffries lost and the black man won, there were race riots and there were lynchings throughout the country. You look at Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier, how that was, you know, mirrored society at the time and Ali with, with his civil, civil rights and Joe Frazier at least cast as the white fighter, even though he was black. 
that became something much bigger than a prize fight. So the, the history of the sport is full of interesting people. Joe Lewis, of course, who kind of broke the color barrier in sports 10, 15 years before Jackie Robinson did, you know, being the heavyweight champion. Jack Johnson was heavyweight champion in the teens. Think about that, you know. So there's a, it's, it's a fascinating history and I never stopped learning. I mean, do you know when boxing actually started as a sport? Is there? Yeah, it started really with bare knuckle boxing before there were gloves. And that, that goes back to the 1700s in England, really is where it started. In America, it did really catch, catch on until the, maybe the 1880s. And the very first superstar of boxing is really one of the first superstars of sports. And he was a man from Boston named John L. Sullivan. And he was the heavyweight champion of the world, the first champion with, who wore gloves first heavyweight champion who won gloves. So he became a superstar. And uh, that title heavyweight champion of the world became synonymous with the most famous man in the world. And for years it was Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, et cetera. So you, you were talking about boxing reflecting what's happening culturally. So obviously the fact that women are starting to play is part of that trend. And I, I'm, I can't imagine that a woman also would want to ha get her head bashed. And is there like a different motivation for women to do this? I, I think there used to be a different motivation. I think in the early days, women came into boxing, professional boxing, much at a much later age than men did. Men, if you didn't, if you weren't doing it by 15, 16 in the amateurs, you weren't going to be any good. Women tended to do it later. A lot of them didn't get into it until they were in their 30s. And their motivation in the beginning was mostly to lose weight, get in the gym, get in shape. Now you find a lot of women who are very much more similar to the men. They see this as an out and a chance to make money and provide for their families because there is some money in women's boxing. Now there never was before. Now the number, you know, the depth of the talent is thin compared to the men, but boxing is a women, women's boxing is an Olympic sport. And that adds so much exposure and credibility to the sport. So yeah, having women boxing is, is great. A lot of men, especially my age, still are very uncomfortable with it. They don't like it. I have no problem with it. I, I find the athletes fascinating in their own way. And uh, some of the best fights this past year have been women's fights. Who, who is one of the most promising women boxers coming up? There's a woman uh, named Clarissa Shields, who's from Flint, Michigan. She's established. She's a multiple time champion. She won two gold medals, the only two times that boxing were, women's boxing was in the Olympics. And her story is a hard scrabble story of a woman who was sexually abused as a child and grew up very, very, in very tough conditions in, in Flint, Michigan. And she's tough. I mean, she's really tough. So she's one. And the other one who's gigantic is a girl named Katie Taylor, a woman named Katie Taylor, who's from Ireland. And she is the biggest athlete, biggest sports athlete, biggest idol in Ireland. And she's great. She's also an Olympic gold medalist and she's undefeated as a professional and she's charming and low key and fantastic. So those two, and there are a number of others, are, uh, you know, Layla Ali going into boxing, Muhammad Ali's daughter, this was many years ago, that helped the sport because Layla was attractive, which broke a lot of the stereotypes of what a boxer should look like. And she had the name Ali. So, and she was very good. She became very good. So that helped a lot as well. She was very influential. Are, are women's, uh, is women, are the fact that women are coming into the sport, is it changing any of the rules? Are they absolutely the same? Do they have to make adaptations? Um, the only real change is that the rounds are two minutes long, not three minutes long. And a lot of the women are campaigning to make it three minutes. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same. You know, the rules are the same. The scoring is the same. And there's really no, not much of a difference. 
what about now that we know so much about brain damage and things like that? Is there any kind of, um, will there be any kind of adaptation based on what we know now from the new science that we're able to? Well, that also is a great question. And it's a very frustrating question for those of us in boxing because, you know, in, you see in football, because of the predominance of brain damage, they try to change the rules a little bit to protect the players. Well, in boxing, you can't. If the idea is still to render your opponent unconscious, how are you supposed to make that safe? You can't. You can't put on headgear. There's never been any tests that headgear helps or li limits the uh, punishment you take. It's very difficult. And if, if there's any boxing media out there who doesn't, who, who doesn't admit to questioning the boxing as a sport, the humanity of it, then they're, they're full of it. Because I've seen myself in fights that I was attending, six people die in the ring in six different fights. And if that doesn't make you question the sport, then you don't have a heart. So it's, sometimes it's very difficult to justify doing what I do or justify the sport itself because let's face it, the point of the sport is to inflict damage. And the easiest way to win is to knock your opponent out. And that means concussion. And then sometimes that means is something as severe as death. I mean, it's hard to believe in our often woke, politically correct culture that we still sort of readily engage in so many kind of sports. But I also heard a minister once say better to get rid of all the city's churches than it's it's sports fields. That yeah, that it's there's some other accommodation that it's fulfilling that is clearly going on, you know, despite well, for, for all the negative, and there's plenty of negative. Yeah. Um, the idea of taking a 13-year-old inner city kid and bringing him to a boxing gym where if he's gonna make it, he has to show a lot of discipline, a lot of determination. That's a life-changing thing for someone that young. It's keeping him off the streets, keeping him away from drugs and violence. The violence in the, in the gym, of course, is a different kind of violence. It's a controlled violence. And you know, ultimately in justifying boxing, I point to that and say, you know, that you can't, you can't put a, a price tag on something, how valuable something like that is. Well, I mean, plus it's so aspirational, which, you know, is so American <laughs> more than, I mean, right. I feel like more than any other country in a way, you know, we allow ourselves to dream and think big. And to, there's this idea of transcending place and class that I've come to learn is not necessarily, doesn't really exist in a lot of countries. Yeah, very true. And the, the, the one of the common misconceptions, though, about boxing, people see the big names, the Mike Tysons, the, you know, Evander Holofield, whoever it is, and they see the money they make. Well, that's made by a very, very, very small percentage of, of the fighters. You know, they're not all millionaires. They don't all fight for a million dollars. A lot of them are abused financially and in business because they're not savvy. And uh, there's a lot of the downside as well as for every success story you hear, there's, there's many, many fa failures. So I, I have to ask you about this. D did you witness Tyson biting Holyfield's ear? I was there. Tell me about that, because <laughs> I remember that. Well, nobody could, who was there would ever forget it, or, or saw it would ever forget it. But I was there. I was covering for the magazines. And uh, he did what he did, Tyson. And I knew right away what he did. I could tell. Even though I wasn't that close to the ring. I could tell by where his face was and the reaction by Holyfield. And... You know, all hell broke loose, of course. This was at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And what I remember most about that night was about an hour after the show, Nigel Collins, who was a colleague of mine at the time, and I said, let's go up to the lobby of the hotel, the MGM Grand. We went up to the lobby, and in the lobby of this big, huge hotel, one hour after the incident had taken place, 
there were bodies strewn throughout the lobby, not moving, bodies. It looked like a Civil War reenaction. Re re so I said to a couple of security guards, are they, are they dead? He said, no, they've been trampled. So what happened was, when, when what happened happened, there was chaos in the casino and people overturned tables and stole chips and ran around and, and there was a mass exodus of the hotel and people were trampled. And, and they were badly hurt. And I just remember, I, I will remember saying, I will never forget this site because you know, that was a crazy night. And that's the kind of thing, as bad as it is, that's the kind of image that you don't lose and that boxing provides that where other sports may not, you know, that doesn't happen at a baseball game. Well, it happens at soccer matches, doesn't it? Yes, like, yes. Let me ask you something, what were some of the other most memorable, strangest, unforgettable moments in your brain? That you well, there's an old saying if you're a boxing writer or a boxing broadcaster that you're really not officially doing it unless you've been involved in a riot. And in Madison Square Garden in the 90s, there was a heavyweight fight, two big names, televised by HBO. I was there covering again for the magazines. And there was a riot that started in the ring and escalated very quickly to the audience. And this is Madison Square Garden. There are probably 15,000 people there. And I just saw, first of all, I was in the press section which is between the ring and the audience. And things were getting out of hand very rapidly. And there were no police there and no security guards could be seen. And I remember saying, I gotta decide what to do here. I gotta get out of here. And the best part of the story is that the BBC, so keep in mind in England, it was maybe five in the morning. The BBC calls my house because I had been interviewed by them many times in the past, wakes up my wife, Marsha, who you know, and says, can we get in touch with Steve Farhood? There's a riot going on in the garden. And she says, what? So she puts on HBO and basically gives them a report off HBO of what's going on. And I had, I was safe, I was okay. But it was, it was an unbelievable scene with people just God. stomping on other people who they didn't know. I mean, you, the sad thing about, not, not to digress, but the sad thing about people is you give them a chance to be violent, a lot of them will take it. When they have no excuse otherwise, if give them a small excuse and they will do it. We, we see it in society all the time. And that was what I saw at Madison Square Garden that night. And it was, it was very upsetting. But that, well, that was just one example of what happens in boxing. You know. Yeah, it, it is an excuse. I, I also have always been captivated by the managers and the organizers of boxing. I mean, did you know Don King? Did you get to interview him? him very well. I can, I can tell you this, right? He's still alive. He's 89 now, I believe. Um, he is easily, easily in my 44 years in boxing, the most interesting man I've ever met, easily. And I'll tell you a very quick story, if I may, 30 second story. I was in Vegas covering a fight, the fight was over and King came up to me and said, Farhood, I want you to work for me. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right, I'm, not, I'm not gonna work with Don King, but out of respect, he said, meet me at 1 a.m. at Dre's, which is a restaurant in Vegas, and we'll talk about it. So 1 a.m. comes, I figured I'm not taking the job no matter what he offers me because I'm not working for Don King. But anyway, I'll go out of respect. So I, I walk in and I see King standing up at a table with eight other people surrounding him. And I, I'm a fly on the wall, he doesn't see me. And I'm listening to what he's talking about. And I can tell right away that the people he's talking to at the table are not, are not with him, that he's holding court. He's talking about the role of the Austrian premier in the Holocaust. <laughs> and I'm listening to him and I'm going, well, only one of two things has happened here. Either he's full of, you know what, and he's winging it, or he really knows this stuff. Turns out the people he was talking to, some of them were Holocaust survivors. And he was educating them 
on the Holocaust in, in, in what happened in Austria during the war. And I'm going, I never talked to him about the job. I left after a while, whatever. He never bothered me again. But seeing him in that setting was amazing. I mean, he, this is a self-taught man who was, who was in jail when he was a young man, you know, for years and educated himself. I saw him on a plane once. And I think you can tell a lot about a person by what they read. Very interesting to see. So I saw he was reading. He was in first class. I was in first class. Out of respect, I went back to say hello. He was reading Plato. I mean, oh who reads Plato on a plane? <laughs> so I, I was I was very impressed. He, he's a fascinating guy. Super interesting. And and I guess Donald Trump was involved in boxing for a while, right? He was. He he promoted some of Tyson's biggest fights when he had his Trump Plaza hotel in Atlantic City. And uh, one time I went up to him. Uh, he didn't know know me, but I went up to him and I asked him, Don, can I borrow twenty till payday? <laughs> just just to, just to throw him off. But uh, yeah, it's hard to believe he became president after being a boxing promoter. Was he a good promoter? He owned the hotel. So yeah, he wasn't bad. He, he, he certainly promoted a lot of big fights with Don King. Uh, there you go. Um, I mean, you, you, you have so many stories, but I'm, I'm sort of fascinated also that you wrote a book, right? 20th century? I wrote a book in the 90s, yeah. And, what was that uh, about? That was really a compilation of what had happened in the century in boxing year by year. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was fun to do. I'm glad I did it, but I, I still love writing. That's really what I am at, at, at heart. It's more than a broadcaster. So, so what, what do you, if, what do you still have left to write in you? And what's, what's in your imagination? Will you be, will you be writing another book? Are you, tell me. I'm too lazy at this point to write another book. I'm too old and too lazy. I've done it. I'm glad I did it. Um, but boxing provides plenty of storylines to write and to dig in. And, you know, if I, if I were a little younger, maybe I would, do another book or two, but right now I'm happy doing what I'm doing, writing for Showtime a little bit, doing features and whatever. Yeah, um, I, I, you, I, just briefly though, you also, um, didn't you, you, you were the founder, the, you founded a, a boxing magazine, right? You didn't yeah, just... when I was only 23, uh, KO Magazine. And that was in 1980, it was for that first publishing company that I worked for. And that became the competitor for the Ring Magazine. And the Ring Magazine is, goes way back and, I became editor of The Ring years later. So I, I, I was able, I was fortunate enough and given the opportunity by other people to, to work at the highest level, which I really appreciate. It was yeah. very beneficial. Wow, wow. And then, I mean, my final kind of question was, I remember during 9-11, people don't realize this, but it, New York is so competitive. Even people who wanted to help and be altruistic had to compete for spots. I yeah. offered to do storytelling in a public school that um, they had brought all the kids in that didn't have a place to go to school. And they said to me, maybe we'll put you after the snake eye and before the magician, we'll have to see. <laughs> right. so, but I, I, I know that you did you did a benefit, right? That was pretty successful. How did that Yeah, happen? it's, it's I, probably the maybe the proudest thing I've ever done because I, I did it all myself. But I, I you know, I had the day after 9-11, my wife went to Chelsea Piers and worked as a, as a, just helping people talk. She got she, in? She got into Chelsea Piers and she, yeah. And then people, you know, just poured their hearts out. People were missing people and everything was terrible. So I said, I got to do something. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I went to Gleason's gym in Brooklyn. I said to Bruce Silverglade, who runs the gym, let's let's do a benefit here. And every single and what I, what I did was I got all these former fighters, for, big name former fighters from the New York area, and had them spar each other. You know, silly, fake fighting. And not one of them said no to me. I sold every ticket. 
and everybody was so generous with their time. And uh, it was, it, it made me feel good, but more importantly, we raised $50,000, which was nice. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really glad I did that. That was a very difficult thing to do, but very worthwhile in the long run. I mean, but you're one of the few people I know who stayed passionate about what they started out doing their whole lives. I mean, most of us, you know, lose interest, get bored, get distracted. I think you're still super passionate about it now. I am. And, and the reason for that is the subject matter I'm dealing with. It's just, it's, it fascinates me and never, never stopped. And I'm not alone. A lot of people feel the same way. And as if in 10 years, um, how do you see in your wildest imagination, how will the sport change? Will it be the way it gets sold on television? Will it be the fact that women are coming up? What, what will be the, the new incarnation for us? That's, that's an interesting thought. Um, I think that boxing will follow whatever the media trend is. You know, boxing used to be on free television. Then when there were premium networks like HBO and Showtime, it moved there because there was more money there. Now it's, you know, spreading to being streamed, you know, so it, it'll, it'll follow that. But unfortunately, in my years, boxing has become a much, much more marginalized sport. It was a much bigger sport in the late 70s and early 80s when you had Sugar Ray Leonard and you had Mike Tyson, and et cetera. And now it's, it's, and it's hurt itself. It, it doesn't, it doesn't right. take care of itself. Well, how is so it, it it's, it's become marginalized. It's not as big a sport as it used to be. At the very high level, it's still great, but the middle level isn't there anymore. It's almost like the middle class has been removed. It, it, and is that, is that because also on a local level, like in cities, it's become too expensive to have boxing rings and things like that? Very, almost impossible to run a small show in New York City and make money. Almost impossible. There's only one or two promoters who even try. So if you don't have grassroots boxing, you're not going to get the bigger stuff. So yes, that's a big problem. But the other problem is that boxing doesn't do anything to help itself. You know, when the NFL has an emergency or has an issue that is negative, such as, you know, head issues, um, they spin it. There are people there to spin it. There are people there to control it, that control the narrative, change the narrative. In boxing, it's all about make more money now, 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 now. Nobody looks out for the long-term health of the sport. And as a result, it's become diminished and marginalized. So it's a shame, but it, it won't go anywhere, but it, it could become, you know, more marginalized. Yeah. Although I'll be curious to see as women emerge, how that changes things. They might, they might, you know, take the, take it in their own hands. I don't know. I, I think that will be the case because a lot of the men who are my age will filter out and younger people will be more willing to accept that. You know, they won't be anti-women's boxing. <laughs> I could go on and on, but I, I've taken up too much of your time, but it, I, I think um, I might have to watch a, a game now. Um, well, we'll get you tickets and you can go if you want. Really? Yeah. There aren't there too many scared? shows in New York. You may have to wait a while, but we'll, we'll get you to a fight. It's, it's a very interesting experience live as opposed to TV. Well, it, that there, could be good or bad. <laughs> so New York still has its live live shows now and again? Yeah, there, there are occasionally shows at Madison Square Garden, but more often there are shows at Barclays in Brooklyn. And uh, yeah, big shows, major shows. I'm excited and scared, but I'll report. <laughs> You'd enjoy it. Thank you so much for taking the time. You've educated me and, and, and now you've captivated my imagination. Well, that's great. I'm glad I did. We, we, we convert people one at a time. That's right. <laughs> and I have a big mouth, so yeah. <laughs> Thank you, it Stan. A, it was a yeah. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, all the best. Bye. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom 
of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called Youth.